This morning's reading comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Um, but before I read, I will pray. So if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts this morning to hear your word, to hear what you would say to us. And Lord, we pray that you would lead Matt as he preaches to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So reading from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our own sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so we believed. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Need to learn something from that handoff. When a sound guy hands off to another sound guy, it goes a lot better than a sound guy hands off to someone who's not a sound guy. 1 Corinthians 11 uh, speaks about the reality of the resurrection of Christ, and all that it means, or much of what it means for our Christian hope. But before Paul answers some of their questions, some of them were denying the um, resurrection, Paul reminds them of why we're talking about any of this in the first place. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And I try to bring this up often enough that we're thinking about it consistently, and seldom enough that it doesn't seem repetitive or odd, but how do you remind yourself of the gospel? How do you summarize it? How do you describe it to your own heart and mind? Because the gospel is a living argument that we receive that destroys, has, has won the battle over death, but also has given peace to our hearts. And how can it give peace to your heart in a felt and consistent way if you don't know how to talk to yourself about it? Paul's expecting them to remember the gospel that he preached and the gospel that they received. And I have the same expectation of myself. And I hope that you do of yourself. He goes on to talk about all that happened to Christ. Summarizing it, he was buried, 
He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. The whole of what happened is important. This is part of the reason the Apostles' Creed was developed, to remind us of what we confess. Not confession of sin, but confession of belief. Then as Christianity became less illegal and not illegal, and then became illegal to not be a Christian, which was not great, we continued to adapt, or not adapt, um, grow in our understanding of these things. So the Nicene Creed is longer than the Apostles' Creed because we realize the importance of the pieces of what Jesus did and what he taught. And in the Corinthian church, some were saying that the resurrection uh, didn't happen and doesn't matter. And Paul goes to great lengths to explain that uh, it did happen, and it matters a very, very, very great deal. He'll give several negative statements about if it's not true, we are to be pitied. If it's not true, we should just do something else with our Sunday mornings. In verses 12 through 19, and oh yes, it has become that time for me. (laughs) Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Many of you gave your allegiance to Jesus because you had some sense of your own sin. I was listening to a podcast by a very famous director of films this week, and the first thing he said was, I'm so sick of myself. And I don't think he's a follower of Jesus, but I think he understands the plight of being a human being. In our best moments, we long to love well, and yet we do so much more harm than good, especially left to our own devices, right? If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, you have not been released from the burden of your sins. And yet, if he has been, what a sweet release it is. I'm growing as a parent at a much slower rate than I wish I was. But when I look at my one-year-old, I think I'm going to have to repent to him so much less than my teenagers. And that makes me sad, but reminds me of the good news, which is that I'm released from those times that I lost my temper with them. And they kind of deserved it, but not as much as I... You know what I mean. I'm growing, but I'm not growing very fast. And the resurrection both empowers that growth, but if it's not true, then I'm not actually released from those. And then I don't know what to do with my children, and I am most to be pitied, and my faith is futile, and yours also. Paul goes on to describe the new heavens and the new earth. Christians oftentimes talk about um, heaven and hell, and those are important. Jesus talked about hell more than everybody else in the Bible combined, but Oftentimes the New Testament talks about what will happen when Christ returns. And he goes on in chapter 15, verse 20 to say, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. That's one of the many pictures that we get in the New Testament of the return of Jesus. Paul's going to talk about it again in a minute. He's going to reference trumpets. He's referencing Isaiah and teachings of Matthew. He didn't yet know the book of Revelation that was given to John that we sang just a few minutes ago. When you think about the new heavens and the new earth, what do you most look forward to? You have a lot of curse fatigue. You're sick of disease and sin and death. Those will be no more. Do you have friends or family that you have not reconciled with? When you see them, you'll giggle about those misunderstandings. The sweetest thing is that we get to be with Jesus theological terms, this is called the beatific vision. That's the sweetest part of the new heavens and the new earth, but all of those things are part of the good. In Revelation 20 and 21, Jesus says he's coming back with his recompense. Do you know what that is? That is a full explanation and healing of every bit of suffering you've experienced. That will be sweet. Will it not? Paul here is talking about it in answering a question that there's no resurrection, so he's not being as, as beautiful and positive as I just was because he's answering negative questions, and yet that is the Christian hope. That because Christ was raised and appeared to 500, and some of them have died. It's one of my favorite parts of the New Testament because it's so, Paul gets so beautiful, doxological, and so mundane at the same time. Appeared to over 500, but some of them have died. So we're going to call it 492, who will still tell you about what it was like to talk with the risen Jesus. He was raised, and our hope is that we will be also, because he who promised it delivered first himself, first fruits, and then us. Paul goes on in verses 35 through about 50 to compare our body on this earth with our body after Jesus returns. He's not here talking about heaven because heaven is a separate realm and not a place for bodies, though it's where Jesus' body is. He's talking about what it will be like for us then. As a little comparison, I grabbed out of the ESV study Bible, which is way too heavy, but a delightful resource. Right now, our earthly bodies are perishable. One day they will be imperishable. They exist in dishonor. They'll be raised in glory. They exist in weakness. They'll be raised in power. They are now natural, they will be spiritual. And the first Adam, a living being from the earth, the last Adam, the life-giving spirit from heaven. 
Today we bear the image of the man of dust, that's Adam. Eventually we will bear the image of the man of heaven. Today we are immortal, then we will be immortal. I wonder if we'll have our scars. What does it mean for Jesus to bring his recompense and to be with him, but also to understand why what happened to us and even what we did happened to us? He still had his scars when he appeared in resurrected form. Now, that was not to set the world to rights. Can you imagine understanding in his purpose and timing all that's happened to you? This section of of Corinthians is written to correct and inform, and Paul fully expects it to encourage. He does this all the time, and this is one of the reasons that reading, especially Corinthians, which is written in reaction to both verbal and written reports about a church in the, um, probably in about 50 AD, but also so beautiful. When the perishable, that's us right now, puts on the imperishable, Christ comes back, And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If Jesus rose from the dead, your small acts of faithfulness in your vocation, your small acts of love in the family he's given you, your continued faithfulness to this spiritual body not only matters, but will in some measure last into the new heavens and the new earth. When God's glory rains down on Simsbury, and it will, some of what we have done will remain. He was raised and we will be also that we be made alive. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I don't think Paul's saying that um, this applies to everyone. I think he expects the Corinthians to remember what he wrote just maybe 10 minutes before, because this is probably being read aloud. It takes about 45 minutes to read the book of Corinthians. In chapter 11, he talked about examining them. But he's promising that they will be made alive with Christ. And when that happens... The root of all that's wrong with the world will be removed. It sounds odd to us in verse 24. Did you see it? Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. All that creates and causes oppression. He's not talking about this specifically here, but all that creates disease and death will be removed, will be extracted by him. And Paul expects this to motivate us. Verses 29 through 34, he's taking some extra (laughs) energy 
to encourage us about the resurrection. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? I don't think he's talking about baptizing people after they die. Other religions do that. Christians do not. He's saying what would be the point of baptism if nothing happens after we're dead? Then he says, why are we in danger every hour? Because it was dangerous to be a Christian in the first century. So why would we act like Christians out in the world? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then this is a waste of your time and mine. He pulls on a a phrase from the Epicureans, go and find something interesting to eat and drink and do. Unless he was raised, in which case our worship is the most profound activity available to us as Christians. And us learning to live out the Christian life where we find ourselves will be costly, probably not as costly as it was to the Apostle Paul, but it will be costly, and it is worth it and good. All of the end times teachings of the Scripture, rightly taught, motivate us. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Correct teaching on the resurrection of Christ motivates you parents to not let your children take their cell phones to their bedrooms. That sounds mundane to you, but Paul expects it to motivate us not to parent them with respect to their happiness, but to parent them with respect to worship of God And love of neighbor. Kids, if you're mad about that, you come talk to me afterwards. I'll explain it. But your job is not for them to be happy, though you want them to be happy, and that's a good desire. Your job is to parent them in light of the truth of God. Spouses, wake up from your stupor and repent of your resentment. 1 Corinthians 13, love is not resentful. If you're married and you don't struggle with resentment, it's because you're asleep. (laughs) What do we get to do then? Wake up from our drunken stupor and say to God, I'm sorry, help. And then see the Holy Spirit recover the love and the like. Anything concerning our future hope is supposed to encourage and motivate us to garden and to do friendship well. And any teaching on the end times that increases your anxiety or makes you think about politics more or less even is not faithful to the Christian scriptures. He was raised that we may be made alive. And Paul was expecting this teaching to motivate us 
to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain until he returns and we're made new. Where does Paul get this idea of a trumpet? For the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. He says this will happen in the twinkling of an eye. Did he hear it when Jesus said it? And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other? Jesus said this about 17 years before Paul wrote it, but it wasn't written down in Matthew for about another 17 years. One of the 500 who Jesus appeared to told Paul this. And Paul thought, you know, that's interesting. It sounds a lot like Isaiah. Chapter 25, when he says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Now it sounds like Revelation, and Isaiah, and Paul, and Jesus and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. In chapter 27 of Isaiah, he says, And in that day a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are lost and driven out will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain. Paul's thinking of these things and through Jesus understanding them and through Jesus' resurrection understanding that that is our hope also. And in between then and now, what do we do? If you keep reading just past the doxology in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds them to continue worshiping on Sundays, which is, by the way, one of the most important historical proofs of the resurrection. A large group of people that for thousands of years had worshiped on Saturday started worshiping on Sunday. And he's like, and don't forget to take up a collection. That's part of your Christian service to plan and your giving. In this particular case, not for the Corinthian church, which was doing well financially, but for the Jerusalem church, which was struggling. He was going to take it to them. Corinthians is a very challenging book. It has a lot to say about uh, being a follower of Christ and morality. And those things are talked about uh, in culture very dismissively. And yet, we believe Jesus is going to return. And if he returns while we're still alive, our bodies will be made new. And if we die before he returns, our spirit gets to be in heaven. And then when he returns, our spirit and our body comes back together. And the earth will begin to be set to rights. Paul expected this to motivate us to be immovable and steadfast in our love for him and for neighbor. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Would you pray with me?
Jesus, we trust you and your words and your work. Enliven our spirits to trust you easily and faithfully this week in the work that you have for us to do, in the people that you have for us to love and to befriend. Enliven our hope that we might be encouraged first by your resurrection and then your promise of our own. Amen.